I invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. And um, Frankie just got through reading for us from this section of Scripture. And you want to go ahead and leave your Bibles open there because we're going to be uh, looking at a section of Scripture from Galatians chapter 3. We'll actually start beginning at verse 19 here in just a little bit. But I didn't want Frankie to have to read that entire section, so I cut it down just a little bit. It is helpful from time to time to... Uh, just take a section of Scripture and see some things that we can learn from it. Just do a little Bible study, if you will, and we're going to be doing that today from this particular text. I think you're familiar with the fact that the book of Galatians was written to the church at Galatia, and uh, Paul was dealing with several different things when he wrote this particular congregation, but one of the things uh, that he was dealing with was the fact that There were Judaizing teachers in that particular church who were trying to tell uh, the people that were members of the congregation there that if they were going to be saved, they had to keep the law. And one of the arguments that was being made is that if you don't keep the law, then you're going to be lost. But if you say that you don't need to keep the law, then what was the purpose of the law? Uh, Why do we even have the law? Are you saying the law was no good? Well, Paul's going to be talking about that today. But the emphasis that Paul wants to make in the book of Galatians, we find in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, where Paul simply says, if you're trying to be justified by the law, then you are fallen from grace. The law had its purpose in time, but it no longer has a purpose, and so Paul wanted to make that clear. Now, oftentimes when you hear a preacher start talking about Judaizing teachers and start talking about the law and whatnot, Our minds tend to go a little blank because that really doesn't make a whole lot of application to us today. But what we're going to be looking at, I hope that we'll be able to bring out some things that helps us to appreciate what Paul is saying. In fact, before we begin looking at the text today, I want us to think about some things. And the first thing I want you to think about is really just kind of an illustration. I want you to pretend that you are standing outside the White House. And you're standing outside the White House and you're dressed in your very finest. Uh, You're wearing the most expensive clothes that you own. You're you're impeccably groomed. You look very nice. You are just very well groomed and ready to present yourself. And you walk up to the front gate and the guard is there and he says, yes, can I help you? And you say... I am here to see the president. There are some things I want to talk to him about, some concerns I need to share with him, some things I would like for him to do for me. And the guard looks at you and kind of gives you an odd look, and he says, well, do you have an appointment? And you say, well, no, I don't have an appointment, but um, uh, he's the president, and, and I'm a citizen, and I want to see the president. And the man kind of looks at you funny again, and he says, well, I'm sorry, sir, it just doesn't work that way. And then you hold up to him this bag, and in this bag are some freshly baked cookies. Oh, they're some of the best cookies the world has ever seen. They're, they're so warm, and, 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 the, and the chocolate chips in them are, are a little bit gooey still, and they smell so good. And, and, and you say, look what I've got for him. I've got some cookies for him, and I know he will enjoy these cookies. And the guard looks at you funny again and says, oh, I'm sorry, you cannot see him. 
and you say, well, I insist on seeing him, and I'm going to, I'm just going to go right past you and go see him. I need to go see him. Well, sir, if you do that, I'll tell you right now that the Secret Service will probably shoot you. There is no way you're getting by this gate. There is no way you're getting by this barrier. There is no way you're getting by me. You are not allowed to see the president. You have, don't have the status. There is too much red tape involved for you just to walk up here and ask to see the president. There's just no way you can do that. You do not have access to see him. And there you are, you're standing there, and, and you feel powerless because there's just no way you can see him. But yet, there's things that you want to discuss where there's important issues that need to be discussed. But then as you're standing there and you're feeling dejected and you're about to walk away, uh, all of a sudden, the president's chief of staff happens to walk by. And he sees you off in the distance and he comes up to you and he says, well, you know... I know you, I don't really know who you are, and um, I don't know really why you're here, and there's really no reason for me to let you in, and there's nearly no reason you deserve to be brought in, but I've decided that today, I'm going to grant you full access. You're going to come with me, you're going to pass this guard, you're going to pass this barrier, you're going to go past this gate, you're going to go past the Secret Service, and I'm going to take you into the Oval Office, and you're going to have an audience with the President. Now think about that just for a moment. It may seem kind of silly to you right now, but it's going to make sense in just a moment, what I'm trying to get you to understand and appreciate. You see, what I want us to do this morning is kind of make a real-life parallel to what the Apostle Paul is going to be talking about in just a moment. You see, in our story, if you think about it, uh, when we want to have access to God, and we'll let, uh, we're not being sacrilegious in this way, just trying to make an illustration, we'll let God be uh, the president, and we'll let the White House uh, being God's throne, or heaven where God exists, and we want to be in a relationship with God, we want to have access to God, but we run into some problems. First of all, we can look at the gates of the White House and we think about the fact of the holiness of God. Because of God being holy, because of the fact that we are sinners, there's no way in the world we can get past that particular gate. We know in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 reminds us that there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 reminds us that they all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of the holiness of God, there has been some gates put up and we have now been separated from God and there's no way in the world we can get past those gates. We do not have access to God, no matter how much we want access to God. And then we look at the guard, we look at the idea of justice. That guard, if we tried to storm the gate, if you will, tried to climb the wall, he would notify the Secret Service, or maybe even himself might pull out a pistol and shoot us. And we're reminded of the fact that we have no access to God. In fact, not only do we not have access to God, that we are deserving to die. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 reminds us that the wages 
of sin is death. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20 reminds us that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And therefore, there's no way we in the world that we can gain access to God. In fact, not only do we not have access to God, in a sense, we deserve to be shot. We deserve to put, be put to death because the justice of God demands it. But then, another parallel I happened to think about was the idea of those cookies. And not only those cookies, but how nice we might have looked as we stood in front of that gate. We may make the argument before the guard there at the White House and say, well, look how much I cleaned up. Look how groomed I am. Look how nice my hair is. Look how trimmed my nails are. Look at this suit that I'm wearing. And not only that, look at this nice big bag of cookies that I made. And sometimes people think it's the same thing, that somehow or another they can get access to God, if somehow or another that they will do their very best, if they will present the good works that needed to be presented. Paul reminds us in chapter 2 and verses 8 through 9 that there's no way in the world that our good works can save us. That it's impossible to be saved by our good works. And so, we, just like here in the White House, we have a problem. We need somebody to come out and talk to us to accommodate the words of Job chapter 9 and verse 33, where he says, If only there was a man in the middle who could bring us together. If there was only somebody in between. If there was somebody who was an arbitrary, somebody that was a go-between, that could bridge the gap between me being outside the gates and being able to be in the Oval Office, me being denied access to God and having access to God. We need a man in the middle. Now, obviously, when we start thinking about this, this is something that you have thought about before. We indeed do have a man in the middle. In fact, the Bible emphasizes it over and over again, and we praise God that we do have a man in the middle. A couple passages that come to mind. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Not going to take the time to read it because it's too long, but I want us to highlight some points. Notice it says that we were separate from Christ. We were excluded from the citizenship in Israel. We were foreigners of the covenant promise. We were without hope and without God. But now in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near. There is peace. The two has become one. He has destroyed the barrier. He has abolished in his flesh the law. He has reconciled us. He has put to death the hostility and... Through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. We do have a man in the middle, and his name is Jesus Christ. Another text that brings this out, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ, He goes on at the latter part of the verse and says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure waters. We not only have access to God, 
because of this man in the middle, Jesus Christ. But as the text says, we can go before him with confidence. We are confident we have access to God Almighty because Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is our man in the middle. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The reason why Jesus Christ is our mediator, the reason why he is our high priest, The reason why he is our intercessor, the reason why he is our man in the middle is because he gave himself to die for us. And when he gave himself to die for us, he died as a ransom to set us free from the sins that were committed under the first covenant or under the Old Testament or under the law of Moses. Now, I've said all that this morning, both with the illustration and the scriptures that we have read, to get us to the point to appreciate the fact of what Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29, where he fully exposes the need for this man in the middle and how this man in the middle gives us such wonderful things. And we're going to be looking at it from two aspects. We're going to look at it from an Old Testament aspect and what what was the law all about, And then we're going to look at it from a New Testament aspect and what Jesus Christ has done for us as this man in the middle. So we hope that you have your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 3. And perhaps you can make some notes. Perhaps you can underline some things to help you to greater appreciate this particular passage and really about this man who is in the middle that gives us access to God. But as we think about this particular passage, The first thing that the Apostle Paul brings out is the purpose of the law. Now, once again, we don't have time to go into a big background about uh, the Galatian letter and why Paul wrote it. But he wanted to make sure they understood, first of all, that they were no longer under the law. And just because they were no longer under the law did not mean that the law did not have its purpose. There was a reason why God gave the law of Moses. There's a reason why we were judged under this particular law. And as you start looking through these verses, you'll start seeing this. Thinking about the purpose of the law, you first go to verse 19, and Paul tells us that the purpose of the law was to expose our sin. Notice what the text says, the first part of it. What then was was the purpose of the law? Paul says it was added because of transgressions. In other words, without the law, we would never know what sin is. The whole purpose of the law of Moses and the old covenant, the way that it was set up, was to show us what sin is. It gave us a definition of sin. You see, we need to appreciate and understand the fact that without some kind of law, there can be no wrongdoing. It's impossible to break a law if no law has been given. I can walk down the streets of Monroe right here, 
Walk all the way home, and I will not get in trouble at all for doing that. Why? Because there's no law against it. But say I got in my car, and I drove 70 miles per hour to get home to my house. Well, if there was somebody that in law enforcement was somewhere nearby, and they saw me or somebody reported me, I would get pulled over, and I would be convicted under the law. Why? Because there is a law that has set up a speed limit, and therefore I need to obey that law. But the point that Paul wants us to understand is the necessity of the law. Why were we given the Ten Commandments? Why were we given the law of Moses? Why were we given the Old Testament? It was not just there as a history of God's people, though that's important. It was not there just to tell us how the kingdom of Israel was built up and how it had kings. It was not just given to us as a way of understanding how that God was displeased with the Israelite people and allowed them to go into captivity. It wasn't just presented to us to tell us how the world began, though that's a wonderful thing to know. The purpose of the Old Testament, the old law, was to point out to us what sin is. How if you do these things, you are committing sin. You are doing things that are wrong. It exposes our sin. It exposes us for who we are. It points out without a doubt that each and every one of us are sinners. Why? Because there's the law. It is written. You have violated. It's no excuse. You are lost. You have broken the law. There it is. There's no way to get around it. We have no excuse in saying, well, I didn't know. Well, it doesn't matter. There's the law. It was given to you since the beginning of time, if you will. That God expected certain things to be done and certain things not to be done going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Even there, God said, you can freely eat of any tree you want in this garden, but here's a law. And if you disobey this law, it's going to expose you for what you really are. And that is a shameful sinner. So Paul lays the groundwork at the very beginning. The whole purpose of this law was to expose our sin so that we would know that we were people who transgressed. But also as you look at this, there's the idea that the purpose of the law was to exalt the promise. Notice what he says in the rest of the verse. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the seed, and of course that's talking about Jesus Christ, Because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. In other words, the law pointed out, first of all, who we were. But the law also pointed out what we needed. We couldn't save ourselves. All the law did was point out to us that we were sinners and how that there was no remedy for this sin. There had to be something else. There had to be something that could save us. There had to be a cure for this. If you go to the doctor and the doctor uh, looks at you and says, I believe there's something wrong with you, but I want to make sure of this. And he puts you in front of an x-ray machine and that x-ray machine exposes the problem that you have. 
Now, the x-ray machine, in some ways, is the law. The law will expose what your problem is, but no matter how many of those x-rays you take, it is not going to cure your problem. There needs to be something else. There needs to be something that you can look forward to, something that the doctor can come to you and say, well, listen, this x-ray exposed your problem, but we have a cure. I've ordered it. If you'll go down to the pharmacy, you can pick it up. I promise you this will take care of it. Paul says that the whole purpose of this law was not only to expose sin, but to make us look for something better, to make us look for a cure, to make us realize there's got to be something else. And he expresses it here in the text of the idea of the seed going all the way back to Abraham, how he says that from your seed, So all the nations of the earth be blessed. How that God was going to find a way to bless mankind and it came in the form of the Messiah. Without the Messiah, there could be no cure, if you will. But why in the world would we look forward to a Messiah? How would we ever even know about the need for a Messiah if the law was not put in place to make us realize that need? And so the Apostle Paul not only says that does it expose our sin, it also exalts the promise. It builds that promise up. In fact, you can look at it this way. The more we realize how sinful we are, the more we realize the need for a Messiah. And the more we have our sin exposed, the more it exalts this idea of a Messiah. That's what the purpose of the law is. But he goes on in the scriptures and he says that it enhances the gospel. Verses 21 and 22 says, It is the law therefore opposed to is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now, he is saying something so very important we need to understand. First of all, he's dealing with these Judaizing teachers there in Galatia, and he's saying, well, you know, then the law was worthless. The law had no purpose. If we're no longer under the law, then then it was a silly thing to begin with. No, the Apostle Paul said the law had a purpose, but the law had a problem. There's nothing in the law that could save mankind. No matter how well you kept the law, there was always going to be the opportunity for you to mess up. No matter how hard you tried, there's no way in the world anybody could keep the law perfectly. And when a person realizes it, that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, then you're going to turn to someone else and you understand and appreciate the benefit, the wonder, the blessing, the amazingness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, before Jesus Christ and our response to the gospel We are a prisoner of sin. The actual word there in the Greek is the idea of being shut up. We are trapped. We can't get free. There's nothing we can do. 
And so when the gospel does come along because of the promise of God, then that gospel really is good news. It really is something that we should appreciate. It's something that we should cherish because the whole world is a prisoner so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ who might be given to those who believe. Paul says that the gospel had a purpose. It exposed our sin, exalted the promise, and it enhances the gospel. It makes the gospel into what it really is. Good news. It's not just something that we should take for granted. But it proves to us that without the gospel, we're going to be lost. We were shut up. We were prisoners because of our sin. But then Paul goes on in the text and he says, this gospel or this law had a purpose of escorting us to Christ. Notice how he puts it. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. What is he saying here? He's saying the law had a very specific purpose. He's saying that before this faith came, and the faith he's talking about is the faith in Jesus Christ as a part of the New Testament, the faith in that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, talking about the faith that comprises the gospel. He brings up again how that we were prisoners by the law, shut up until this faith should be revealed. So why was that done? Why was the law written for that purpose? He says, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Now notice what he wants us to understand and appreciate there. The whole thing about the law was to get us to realize that we can't do it on our own. That we're prisoners, we're shut in. And that our only hope was to be saved by Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. And that only hope involved faith in Jesus Christ. Faith that not only is He the Son of God, but faith that He is able to save us if we put our trust and faith in Him and His atoning blood. But in order to get to that particular point, we had to be led down this path We had to be supervised, if you will, to get us to appreciate how wondrous it is that there is someone named Jesus Christ, that there is someone who is the man in the middle. In fact, he makes a very powerful illustration right here. The NIV has, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. But if you look very closely at this verse, the word here is a Greek word called patagosis. And it's an interesting word. In some translations, I think Frankie's had tutor. I think the King James has schoolmaster. But it carries with it a very special idea. This particular person, a pedagogus, was a slave that was given the responsibility to take care of children. And the boys 
especially was his assignment, and he would be given the supervision of these boys from the time they were born until the time they reached adulthood. And his responsibility was to make sure they were taken care of, to make sure they were taken, or led to school, to make sure they were gone to all the different places, to make sure they were under constant supervision until they reached manhood. And once they reached the age of accountability, once they were able to claim themselves as adults, once they were able to say, I am a part of this household and I am a man, that particular fellow was out of the picture. He no longer had any supervision over them. He became a slave to the very person at one time he had supervision over. In other words, the whole situation changed. The boy that was under supervision became a man, and the very man that was being under supervision now has supervision over the one that had supervision over him. I hope I hadn't confused you there. But that's the point that Paul is making. He is saying once that we have become Christians, that thing that had supervision over you, that told you that you were a sinner, that now has been done away with. Because now you are free. Now you are a man in Christ, if you will, and you're no longer under that anymore. Notice what the text says. says. He says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. It always amazes me in the religious world today how there are different religious groups who try to tell us that we're still under the law as far as dietary laws, as far as Sabbath day laws, as far as worship laws, as far as anything, when the Apostle Paul says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. It has no power over us at all. And once again, to emphasize what he says in chapter 5 and verse 4, when he says, if any of us try to be justified by this law now, in the New Testament age, He says, you have fallen from grace. Why? Because there's nothing in this particular law to save us. All the law did was expose our sin. All the law did was exalt the promise. All the law did was enhance the gospel. All the law was supposed to do was to escort us or supervise us till we came to Jesus Christ. But then we need to think about the second half of this text. We need to think about the promise of liberty now. Now the Apostle Paul changes direction in the text. He quits talking about the purpose of the law and how that it had its place, but now we are not need to be concerned about it. But instead, now his emphasis is on the promise of liberty. Because the law has been done away with, because we have a man in the middle, then we've got the promise of liberty. Notice how this is brought out now in the rest of the text. First of all, the Apostle Paul says we have a new identity. Now because the law is done away with, and now because we have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, now because we have a man in the middle, we have a new identity. The text puts it this way. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, you used to be children of the devil, but not anymore. 
Now you are sons of God and Jesus Christ. Now he makes this point right after talking about uh, this pedagogus and how there was a time when you were under the supervision of this pedagogus and how that he had authority over you because you have not reached the age of being a true son. But now you're a son of Jesus Christ and therefore that pedagogus has no authority over you anymore. You have been given a new identity. You are the son of God. You're a part of the family of God. You're no longer under that old law. You have been set free from that old law. You have been given liberty with full status in the household because you are a child of God, a very special child. But then the text goes on and points out the fact that we now have a new relationship because the law had been done away with. Text puts it this way, For all of you who are baptized in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now the purpose of saying you have a new identity is to say you have changed, something's changed about you. You have taken off that old man of sin and put on a new man. And his name is Jesus Christ. You are wearing Jesus Christ. How did Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When Christ and God looks at us now, he doesn't see the man I used to be under the law, but instead he sees something else. In fact, he sees Jesus Christ. Why? Because I'm wearing the clothes of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has encompassed me, is the beautiful thought of this word. You're familiar with the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And you remember how the prodigal son left his father and went out and lived riotously in the world. And there came the point in time when he repented and said, I want to go back home. And when he went back home and the father met him with open arms, what was the first thing he did? He put on him a new robe. He clothed him in the house, in the robe of the house. He clothed him with ownership, and saying, you belong to me. I don't care about your tattered clothes that you had put on when you were in the world, when you were living with pigs and were tempted to eat of their food. You now have a new robe. Paul's saying the same thing. Now that the law has been done away with, and we have this new relationship with Jesus Christ, we have clothed ourselves with Christ. You've heard me tell this story before, but maybe you've forgotten it about the man who was married to a nice lady, and the man was a terrible person because he would beat on this woman. It got to the point that finally the father of the girl came to the house and ran the man out of the house and said, if you ever come back here, I'm going to kill you. You will never treat my daughter this way again. A couple years passed, and there was a knock on the door, and The father went to the door and there was that man and he said, what did I tell you? I told you if I ever saw you again, I was going to kill you. And the man stopped him for a minute. He says, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not that same man anymore. I I, I may look the same and my clothes may look the same, but I'm wearing something different now. I'm wearing Jesus Christ. I am a new man. I have a new identity. And it's because of a new relationship with Jesus Christ. I am not that same man. And the same thing happens to us. When the old law 
teaches us that we are sinners and we so need that man in the middle. We need to understand that when we have obeyed the gospel by being baptized into Christ, we have clothed ourselves with Christ. It's like we go into the baptistry wearing these, these robes that we've been given to, to be baptized in, but in a spiritual sense when we come out, we exchange these robes for Jesus Christ. He is the one that now clothes us. But then the Apostle Paul goes on. He says, not only do we have a new identity, a new relationship because of this change, he says, we now have a new standing. Verse 28, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. In other words, at the foot of the cross, the ground is very equal. At the foot of the cross... There is no higher ground or no lower ground. It is all the same. Now, we read that verse now, and it really doesn't mean a whole lot to us now because Jew and Greek, we don't have to deal with that. Uh, This day and age, we don't deal with the slave or free type thing in this country. Uh, This male or female thing, uh, oh, yeah, there may be some inequality there, but, but we're talking about Christianity, and we really don't see that. So we sometimes lose the impact of this particular verse. But we need to make sure we understand and appreciate what Paul was saying here now that we have this promise of liberty, liberty from the law because of this man in the middle. What he is saying is, regardless of who you are, all people are treated equal when it comes to Jesus Christ. What do you mean by that, Jim? I mean that I'm going to be saved the same way that you're going to be saved. My sins were just as bad as your sins. There's nobody that deserves more to be saved than you deserve to be saved. There's nobody less that deserves to be saved than less than you deserve to be saved. In other words, all men everywhere are going to be the same. And all men everywhere are going to be saved the same. And all men everywhere are going to receive the same blessings the same. There's no partiality with God. There's no people who are halfway Christians or better than other Christians. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. You know, sometimes we look at others and we say, well, I'm a better Christian than they are. Or sometimes we look at others and say, well, I'm not as good a Christian as they are. The point that Paul is making is that under the cross, at the foot of the cross, it's equal. There's nobody that has higher status than somebody else. But instead, all are one in Christ Jesus. I have been moved from that terrible standing of being a sinner to being one in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on and gives us one final point I want us to think about, and that is that we have a new future. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs going to the promise, according to the promise. And once again, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us living in this day and age. I so appreciate the class that Scott's been teaching on Sunday mornings on the book of Genesis, and we've discussed this idea of Abraham's promise. That from his seed shall all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This was first recognized in the Jewish people, how that through the descendants of Jacob or Israel would come the 12 tribes of Israel, and they would become a great nation, and God would bless them and take care of them. But the point that Paul is making here, that has all changed now. It's not 
a particular group of people as far as nationality or race. In fact, he had just said in verse 28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. And that leads us to this point, that we are now God's chosen You see, the Israelites, they were given the law, and they were given the law because they were God's chosen people to receive the law, and through that nation would the Messiah come, and all through that time of being under the law, what happened with the Israelite people? They would do good for a while, and they would fail. They would do good for a while, and they would fail. If you get the opportunity, sometime read the book of Judges. It's just a constant cycle. Do good, fail, God sends a redeemer. Do good, fail, God sends a redeemer. Now, Jesus Christ, because of what he has done, he's done away with all that, and he has made us his promised people. He has made us his chosen people. We are heirs according to the promise. All the blessings that were bestowed upon Abraham and were promised to him are now given to us. So this morning, as we think about this man in the middle, I want you to think about what Jesus Christ has done for you. I want you to think about the fact how that even though the law exposed us for what we are, even though the law had created a barrier that says there's no way in the world you could ever have access to God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting benefits or everlasting life. And so for this quotation from Psalm 103, the question we need to ask ourselves this morning whether we are Christians or not Christians, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits? In other words, if you're a Christian, you need to thank God every day for what he's done for you. How that you were at one time under the law, but because of what Christ has done, that law does not apply to you anymore. You now have the promise of liberty, freedom from that law. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to think about what God has done for you. Even though the law exposes you for who you are, a sinner who is lost and totally separated from God, because we have that man in the middle, that mediator, that intercessor, that high priest, you can have an escape from that law and have the promise of liberty in Jesus Christ. If you have a need this morning, we hope that you'll come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.